Over 10 years ago, the Joint Operational Access concept predicted that, quote, a logical opening operation to any anti-access campaign, China against the United States, is to neutralize U.S. space assets. Because space plays such a critical role in enabling operations on the Earth's service. Um, Dr. Plum, General Dickinson, do you believe this is a reasonable assessment? From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hey there. Welcome back. That was Massachusetts Representative Seth Moulton this Wednesday at the Strategic Forces Subcommittee hearing on the 2024 Department of Defense budget. And here is the response from Commander of Space Command, Army General James Dickinson. First of all, thank you for those kind remarks uh, as, you, as you got ready to ask the question. It's been an honor to serve in the U.S. military for 38 years. Uh, to your question, I think uh, we just have to look, quite frankly, at some of the PLA writings on doctrine and strategy that do suggest what you just mentioned, which is that the reconnaissance, communications, navigation, and even early warning satellites could, I'm not saying will, could be among the, tar- the first targets to be attacked. And so it, just in accordance with their own strategy, their own doctrine, we have reason to believe that that might be the case. And Dr. Plum is nodding his head, so I'll take that as an agreement. Um, Thursday, the Biden administration requested $842 billion for the Department of Defense's 2024 budget. How much of that is going to the Space Force or defense-related space programs won't be clear until the administration releases the budget justification books next week. But we can get an idea of what's important to the chief of space operations, Space Force General Chance Saltzman. He told a conference audience this week that the purpose of the Space Force includes counter space operations to, quote, prevent adversaries from leveraging space-enabled targeting to attack our forces, unquote. And just a week earlier, the Space Force CSO wrote in a note addressed to all Space Force guardians that, quote, preserving U.S. freedom of action in an increasingly contested space domain requires a military force specifically trained and equipped for the purpose, unquote. Okay, so where am I going with all this? Because this week we're not tackling the budget. That's because we only have the top line numbers and zip on details. This episode is about a new space company that's aiming to disrupt how the DOD trains and equips its space pros, how they war game, and just how the Space Force secures U.S. interests in space. The company's name is True Anomaly, and what sets it apart from others is the fact that the founders have recent real-world military space operations experience, and it shows. The name of the first spacecraft line is Jackal. It's an orbital pursuit vehicle that's not being touted as a satellite. To learn more about the genesis of the company and its business case and more about the Jackal, I spoke with co-founder and CEO Evan Rogers. Here's our conversation. Hello, Evan. Welcome to the Downlink Podcast. Laura, thank you for having me. 
Now, before we start talking about True Anomaly's plans to disrupt the security space sector, I think it's really important that the audience has the opportunity to get to know you. So take a moment and introduce yourself. Let us know, you know, who you are, where you are, and and what you're doing with True Anomaly. Yeah, thanks so much, Lauren. It's, and it's really a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Um, my name is Evan Rogers. I'm the CEO of a defense startup called True Anomaly. I'm sitting here in Denver, Colorado, in our brand new released under renovation, 35,000 square foot satellite and engineering production facility. Um, I, prior to founding True Anomaly, I was a Air Force officer, spent nine years as a space operations officer. I didn't make the transition like many of my colleagues into the Space Force uh, because I chose to to leave the military and and join a slightly different community, but still within that same circle of uh, space operations focused people who care about the security of the space environment. I spent most of my career um, in satellite command and control and developmental test and operational tests. So I, after officer training school in 2012, I went to an organization called the Fourth Space Operations Squadron. So I spent a lot of time in Maxwell, <clears throat> you and I were speaking about just uh, during the during the off the record portion here, uh, that muggy place, um, but place of history, exciting place of history with lots of airframes sitting around. So when I was at the Fourth Space Operations Squadron, I flew a constellation of spacecraft called the Advanced Extremely High Frequency System, provides communications through nuclear scintillated environments and anti-jam uh, uh, environments, or, or, or high, high jamming environments, rather. Uh, while I was at Force Ops, I had the opportunity to witness sort of a couple of key test and evaluation activities by some of our adversaries that indicated that they were building up a capability to counter U.S. and allied space systems. And I just latched onto that. I thought that was fascinating. And it gave me an opportunity to go from just being a space operations officer focused on kind of keys, you know, hand fingers on keys, flying satellites and doing sort of more maintenance things to thinking about how do I defend against these threats now, these emerging threats? And what does that mean, right, more broadly for the, the architectures? And then what does it mean for conflict? So I went into a community called Weapons and Tactics. I went to the Air Force Weapons School, uh, which is uh, sort of the premier tactics and, and junior leadership school in the Air Force uh, at the time. From there, I went to be a space aggressor. And all, all of these experiences are, are really critical to the development of True Anomaly. So that's why I'm going into a little detail here. Oh, no, please do, because you do have an uncommon space heritage for a CEO in the space industrial base. So please continue. Yeah, do you talk to many other CEOs in the in the in the space defense industrial base? Well, I do quite often, but I I'd have to say that you're really uh, the first that's really come across as somebody who's actually uh, you know driven yeah. the satellites and actually thinks about operations and tactics and has that oh. experience. So yeah, absolutely. So yeah, please go. Well, well, when I was at the space aggressors. The, the community writ large was really starting to think about how do we train against these threats. So one of the things you'll hear General Saltzman speak a lot about, the, the current chief of space operations, is the importance of readiness, of training guardians. And one of the ways that the space, that the, the, the DOD trains its service members is against other service members that are pretending, that are operating systems and, and employing the tactics and the thought processes of our adversaries. So there's an organization in Colorado Springs called the Space Aggressors that at the time was part of the, the, the adversary tactics group at Nellis Air Force Base. So there's a there's a, some air folks and surface air folks and 
And then there was a space group and I was the weapons officer there. And my job was to stand up the capability or the, the, the very rudimentary capability of replicating threats to space assets, as opposed to bringing threat replication to the air community, doing electronic warfare, GPS and SATCOM jamming. So I got the opportunity to, to pioneer a couple of those activities. We flew an Air Force Research Lab satellite called the Angels spacecraft that was was kind of done with its with its uh, uh, S and T activity, science technology activities. It was handed over to the operations community as a trainer. Um, and uh, one of my co-founders, Dan Brunsky, and I developed a a plan and implemented a plan for using that spacecraft to replicate threats. That was successful. We did some of the first space flags. Uh, which was which was great, but it, it really still left a lot to be desired. Uh, and you'll hear that uh, from Guardians today. After that, I was asked to go to DARPA. I was a service chiefs fellow at the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, three-month fellowship as a captain, uh, which was sort of a rare experience. Most folks kind of go in as majors or lieutenant colonels. And that gave me a, a, a really interesting and focused exposure on the sp- state of the defense industrial base with respect to space and, and airframes uh, in particular. After that, I was asked to go to the Space Security and Defense Program and, and was tasked with building a developmental and operational test team uh, to write the TTPs for a brand new system that was a flagship capability at the time, um, and then determine the performance of that capability in combat. And a lot of the insights that came out of that process are, are kind of what's behind the intellectual backdrop of True Anomaly, but also now has become the the way that provided these some of the early examples for the way that the space community is thinking about integrated test range on orbit range infrastructure um threat replication how do you design tests to test you know capabilities on orbit in a realistic threat environment my last assignment was at the joint task force space defense after i did that job for or I did the space security and defense program job for three years and I was a, what's called a fires officer. So along with now one of my co-founders, Tom Nichols, who's the chief product officer here at True Anomaly, he and I were responsible for integrating space defense and space offense capabilities into the rest of the joint fight. So we were kind of the the execution arm for fielding into PACOM requirements and UCOM requirements, and then thinking into the future about how we were going to, once you know, sort of more mature counter space capabilities came to bear, how we were going to bring that into uh, into real, no kidding, combat operations against near peer adversaries. So, in 2022, or excuse me, the late 2021, <clears throat> I made the decision to to leave the military. I loved every day I was in uniform, but it was very clear that the community needed needed a defense industrial partner, and that sort of my skills were best suited to to try to go solve some of the problems at the convergence of technology and tactics. And uh, here we are today in Denver. And. Last September, you had a very interesting meeting with the Senate Space Force Caucus, and I've been told that it was about the threats and what your new company plans to do to meet them. My audience, if they've been paying attention, and I hope they've been paying attention, is aware of some of the geostrategic threats, but I'm not so sure that they have a firm grasp on the industrial acquisition and training gaps that must be addressed to meet the threat. And while I'm sure there are many you know, what would be your number one threat that you think needs to be solved? I, I, I probably view this maybe differently than others. When you step into conflict, particularly with a near peer adversary like China, there are a massive amount of unknowns. The, the, the intelligence community and, and defense intelligence organizations do spend a lot of time trying to prevent surprise. But we have a, another challenge 
in the space community, which is we have very nascent doctrine for how to fight in the domain. So because of that nascent doctrine, it's very difficult to articulate the kinds of systems that need to implement doctrinal principles and precepts and tactics, right? So ideally you're designing systems that reflect the way that you want to fight rather than designing systems based on the capabilities of the defense industrial base. The way that the defense industrial base today has been tasked and, and largely I think is thinking about the problem outside of true anomaly is they're doing the equivalent of trying to create an air to air fighter by taking a Boeing 737 and strapping air to air missiles to it, as opposed to thinking about from a first principles perspective, what are the tactics and operations you want to execute in the environment and then building capabilities to meet those. So to answer your question, we have this knowledge deficit that has effects on systems, on training, because we don't know what to train to. And that makes it very difficult for the Space Force to articulate to Congress and to the joint community the value that they add, number one, and why they need to be resourced further. Now, this has changed over time, to be clear, but they don't, we, we still as a community don't quite have the, the, the very tight line of reasoning and anecdotes and history that you can point to. It's a lot of it's conjecture. So the intelligence community and the Space Force has spent a lot of time pointing to trends in Chinese and Russian counterspace development to say things like, see, if you follow that trend line, you're going to end up with threats like this, and we don't have the schlitz to deal with that. So I think the threat actually is a lack of experience and lack of knowledge. It's not lack of kit, right? If that makes sense. And it's the readiness problems come from a lack of knowledge. And, and we'll talk, hopefully we'll talk about a little bit later about how we think about shoring those things up. You can talk about it right now because I am wondering, well, you know, what does true anomaly aspire to solve? What is the demand signal? What's true anomalies offering to solve it? Yeah, I, I'm glad you asked that question, Laura. <clears throat> the objective of true anomaly is to be a reliable defense industrial partner for the Space Force and the intelligence community initially. We can talk about commercial later. So that as the Space Force learns how it wants to fight, it has the capabilities that reflect those desires and those objectives, which requires, an, an, when, I, when I say the word industrial partner, I really mean an industrial partner, leveraging the, the very mature contract vehicles and acquisition authorities that already exist. There, there's a lot of time that is spent sort of talking about defense regulations, acquisition regulations, and there's there's really solid reasons to be critical of those. But all of the tools that are necessary for a great contracting officer and program manager to leverage other transaction authorities and middle tier of acquisition to get the job done, all that stuff exists. So our objective as a company is to field the complete solutions that are required to get after the readiness problem, the systems problem, and to do all of that work from first principles of conflict. So how do you envision what conflict might look like in two years from now, three years from now, five years from now? So there's a think tank aspect to our company that is that is predicting, trying to predict what conflict is going to look like and building the capabilities and iterative sense to field them on time. And, and then to leverage contemporary manufacturing processes and software development practices to, to, as I said, do that on time and then critically at scale, right? So what you can't do is you can't field systems that are a billion dollars a piece or $250 million a piece because now you're starting to get back into the normal sort of defense industrial dynamic, which is let's do everything cost plus. Every invariably you're going to have cost overruns and you're going to have schedule problems as well. And you're going to end up with 
fewer reps on capabilities, fewer iterations on capabilities, and that introduces risk. So we are building the solutions for readiness, which means we're building trainers, we're building modeling and simulation environments, we're building very high fidelity physics libraries that allow for operators to interact and, and learn and in a self-paced way uh, about the physics of the domain and about how to fly. And then we're building intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance capabilities, or sometimes in our community called space domain awareness capabilities to go take pictures of Chinese and Russian satellites and other gray satellites, so other countries' satellites, and to do anomaly resolution on blue satellites at close ranges so we can get a really strong understanding of what other countries are up to in the space domain. We have this dearth of knowledge about what they're really doing, and, and we need to fix that uh, for, for a number of reasons in order to really to feed the, the systems development feedback loop, but also for global accountability, right? If China and Russia are weaponizing space, you want to be able to point to that and say, hey, look, you got to stop and here are the consequences if, if you don't stop. Now, when I looked at the slides you used to brief the Space Force Caucus, I've got to admit, it's kind of like looking at what a prime contractor or, or primes, um, and just for the audience, you know, they're the big traditional space and defense corporations like Boeing or Lockheed Martin. They sell and promise to deliver, you know, a final product to the Department of Defense or NASA for the civil side because they signed the primary contract. They then turn around and often work with subcontractors to get the bits and pieces that make the whole. I'm wondering, you know, is this what you're looking to do or is this something different? I mean, walk us through how your space and defense ecosystem works, because you've got a lot going on. I mean, you're talking trainers, you're talking satellites. There's a lot of spokes on this wheel. That's that's exactly right. There, There's a maybe one a, a couple of key observations about the way the primes operate today that, that are important to frame the differences here with True Anomaly. So number one. The vast majority of big defense projects are cost plus. So the primes take very low risk, very limited risk, and the risk is placed really at the end of the day with the taxpayers. But the risk manifests as risk to the lives of service members. Um, the the second is the primes, with the exception of every prime has a an IRAD shop, an internal research and development, science technology shop. Some of them are very good and storied, right? They're they're really great. But by and large, the primes don't build much. They mostly integrate, right? So they subcontract. That's ex exactly right. And you and you pointed that out in, in the prelude to your question. True anomaly aligns incentives with cost, or excuse me, with firm fixed price contracts. So we we have an internal incentive mechanism. And it's you you hear a lot of companies talk about this, but it is so critical, Laura, that that to move fast, you have to use firm fixed price contracts because then the risk is on the contractor, which means, and the incentive is also on the contractor, particularly if the payment milestones are sort of mostly biased towards payment on delivery. So one of the things that we've done is we've actually gone to the Space Force and said, hey, look, we're going to go raise a bunch of private capital. We're going to reduce all the risk, technical and conceptual risk ourselves, all the production risk. And then we're going to sell you a complete product at the very end. And we're going to, that product is going to be the best it possibly can because it's economically desirable to do so from the standpoint of the survivability of the business, right? Margins, margins of the business. Um, but, but also it forces us to create, to, to really innovate, right? And then to, and then to make decisions about vertical integration. So this is the second piece. Right now we're relying on when we're, we'll get to the spacecraft we're building, I'm sure, but 
there are some outside companies that we're aligned on to deliver. We've been very judicious about who we chose to partner with. Um, and I, I don't think we're announcing those, those partnerships yet. But over time, we will vertically integrate our capabilities and we'll start mostly resourcing internal research and development. So IRAD becomes part of a very rapid and iterative product development process wherein tactical problems turn into technological solutions. We analyze those problems from first principles and say, what are the likely tactics that are going to be employed, right? What are the operational needs? How is the system going to operate in its environment? And then we create the best possible system to do that with all the economic incentives aligned on the back end. And that's how you get a different type of defense company. We're certainly not the first to take this approach. I would say, you know, however, I think what's truly unique about True Anomaly, even from some of the other defense industrial participants like Shield and Anderil that are popping up, is we have a, a very nuanced understanding of the way that operations are conducted in the domain and and the specificity of those operations in the space domain. And that's not to say that Shield and Anderil don't have awesome operators on their staff informing their architectures and things like that. I don't I don't mean to say that. But there's a, there's a first principles research aspect of tactical employment that's embedded in our product development process that I think is is likely unique. Um, so yeah, your slides say that you've got 350 million in private capital. Whose capital? Can you say? No. So that slide says that's what we're investing in private capital over the next four years. So that's a typical funding profile for a fast growing defense startup. Okay. And partnered with the right venture capital funds that have the depth of resources to go execute that. To date, we've raised a seed, a pre-seed, a seed, and a series A round. And, and we're well on our way, assuming we hit our market, um, our, our go-to-market milestones and our production milestones to, to probably exceed that amount of private investment. And that's the key story to the Space Force, as I said before, is we're taking the risk, right? We have investors that are willing to take the risk because it's good for good for America and good for our service members. Um, and and if you look at the funding profiles, like th that's probably shy of what we'll invest over the next th three to five years, certainly. Um, like Anderil just 2017, and they just did a $1.3 billion funding mm -hmm. round. Shield is, I think, onto their Series D. So yeah, that's what it takes. I mean, to be frank, that's what it takes to to change the face of the industrial base and and really to launch a brand new um, industrial partner for a brand new service, right? Brand new combatant command. So then let's talk about mission one, which will include Jackal one and Jackal two. What are they? Where are they being built? Who's launching it from where and when and, and who's paying for it? Yeah, get to the fun part. Oh yeah. Well, last question first, we're paying for it. Well, our investors are paying for it. So everything that we've done and, and plan to do this year is on private capital, and for, and including 2022. So we started fundraising in March. Uh, that fundraising process was very quick. We did a seed round. We did our Series A at the end of last year. And then that capitalized the business sufficient sufficiently to launch our first two satellites. Those first two spacecraft are called Jackal 1 and 2. But more broadly, the line of spacecraft, the first line of spacecraft that we're building are what we call the Jackal Autonomous Orbital Pursuit Vehicle. So that spacecraft is designed to take close range pictures and, and other, uh, and eventually collect intelligence and other sensing phenomenologies at close range 
to other satellites autonomously. And the reason it's called a pursuit vehicle is there are a number of spacecraft on orbit that are difficult to chase down. And so you have to have the, the Delta V, the, the fuel capacity to both maneuver to chase those targets as they attempt to evade you perhaps, but also do all the sort of normal orbital adjustment that's required to get into close range, conduct what's called rendezvous and proximity operations. So uh, is that a term that's familiar? I'll unpack it. So, it, it, No, it, it is. I mean, it, I mean, rendezvous and proximity in the sense of everything's moving really, really fast. And so if you're going to rendezvous it, you're going to have to have your uh, Algebra 2 right to uh, to to connect. <laughs> That's pretty much it. And, you know, it sounds really simple in a way, uh, but everything happens to be, you know, moving faster than a bullet leaving the barrel of a Beretta. So um, it it has its challenges. You're, you're absolutely right. It is a very difficult guidance, navigation, and control problem. We are particularly focused on this idea of what's there, there are three types of rendezvous rendezvous and proximity operations cooperative non-cooperative and uncooperative so cooperative would be with two spacecraft that are passing information between each other non-cooperative would be one satellite that has maneuver capability but one satellite that might be three axis stabilized or maybe even in a tumble but isn't giving you any information right and then there's the really sporty stuff which is uncooperative which is what a pursuit vehicle, the Jackal Autonomous Orbital Pursuit Vehicle is designed to do, right? Which is to go track that target, follow it, take images, and do all of that safely and autonomously. So uh, the other parts of your question, we're launching on SpaceX Transporter 9. We're launching at the end of this year. And and as I said, we're we're paying for all of that. Both spacecraft are designed and built, and they go through a process, what's, uh, what's called assembly, integration, and test here in Denver, Colorado. So the factory that's sitting behind me is 18,000 square feet of production facility. The other side of the building is 17,000 square feet of engineering office space and, and other things and cornhole boards and ping pong tables, you know, all the sort of mandatory startup things minus plastic slides and and uh, and free food. Um, <laughs> so we're doing all that work ourselves. And that's critical. Or as I mentioned, the only way that you iterate very quickly is by controlling cost schedule and performance, right? And that means you got to own and the having satellite. a and having a mission mindset. That's exactly right. So we call it the, the objective is to own the kill chain and own the value chain, which should tell you a lot about the roadmap for the technologies we're building. Kill chain is incorrectly labeled as F two T two E A, but that's typically what people think of in the in the Air Force. Find, fix, track, target, engage, and assess. You could find, fix, finish as another example. There's lots of articulations of it, but to do that, you need to build sensing technologies. You need to build decision-making technologies, and then you have to build end-affecting systems. You have to be able to move through space kind of at will to deliver effects at the time and place of your choosing, not on your adversaries, um, not at the whims and, and objectives of your adversary. And then the value chain is a combination of, you know, it really comes down to vertical integration. One of the reasons our capitalization requirements are so heavy is that we have to build electronic propulsion systems and chemical propulsion systems and eventually in sensing technologies and and perhaps communications technologies as well. Um, so yeah, but bottom line is the spacecraft was 100% designed by our team. We have a phenomenal team of very fast moving and talented engineers who know who know how to do this work, who have decades and decades in the business. This isn't sort of like a, a startup with you know folks 
straight out of college, although we have do we do have a couple of very talented people that we value very much right out of college. But our engineering leadership is largely, you know, exceptional people from organizations like Ball Aerospace or Lockheed Martin, for example. We wanted to go kind of work on wicked hard problems with smart people, and and that's what they get to do here. So do you already have contracts? We just signed our first contract last week. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) you. (laughs) All right, come on. Tell us about it. With who? What for? Yeah, I don't think that I can talk about it yet, but stay tuned. I will Uh, be one of the first to know, maybe. That's crushing. All right. Yeah, you should be. I also have to let you know that... I took a look back at your Shriver essay back in 2014 when you were second lieutenant, Evan Rogers. And in that essay, you were talking about the need for a well-trained fighting force, which is pretty apparent. That whole uh, theme has really stuck with you. Um, And you were talking about, you know, winning in a contested, degraded, and operationally limited space domain. And you channeled John Boyd very specifically, writing that success in this environment will come down to whoever can handle the quickest rate of change. I want to understand, you know, how does your mission control testing and training environment actually evolve and handle that quickest rate of change? Great question. And the the internet has a storage of all things. I Sometimes I forget about that article, but but really it, it is the, it was kind of the first articulation of what has become the intellectual backdrop of, of certainly my career. Um, and it was co-authored with, with uh, a gentleman who's currently uh, also in the DOD, still Brian Bell, he works in the Pentagon, um, under the COO's office, a brilliant strategist, brilliant tactician, and great officer and mentor. And I do want to make maybe one addendum to that statement I made as a second lieutenant. I, I fell victim to a classic sort of partial interpretation of Boyd's Loop. Speed of reaction and is is important. However, the accuracy of your Loop is also critical. So if you only read some of Boyd's work, or maybe you kind of go through it secondhand, you'll miss some really essential thinking on the second O in that OODA loop orientation. So our training systems are really focused on refining an operator's ability to orient to tactical problems. So this goes back to what I was saying at the beginning of the interview, Laura, which is that readiness is not just about it's it's not just about exposure to lots of different things. At the end of the day, that that's a tool, certainly. And it's not just about having the right capabilities. It's not just about having great instructors. But the, the end state of readiness is two things. One, it's a very refined expert orientation framework, which means I have to be able to see tactical problems, right? <clears throat> so that's the first part, observe. I have to have enough domain awareness to be able to, to sense the things that, that are happening in the environment. I have to filter that information to the things that matter, right? And then I have to make sense. I have to make meaning out of those, those different sort of independent data streams. So if you look at a problem in rendezvous and proximity operations, or you look at some really cool trajectory that somebody somebody shows you, right, on a piece of paper or on a computer screen, so there, there's this, this interpretive act that requires thousands of hours of training um, 
that that is necessary for an operator to be successful in conflict, which is I have to say, yes, that trajectory is this attack profile or that trajectory is maybe a completely benign maneuver for station keeping. How do I know the difference between those two, right? So our, you know, one of the reasons we take a first principles approach to designing training systems and technology in general is we have to answer those questions, right? What matters in conflict? What matters in a 1v1 space-to-space engagement? What what matters in a surface-to-orbit engagement? How do I, and then you can start to answer questions like how do I evade, right? Once I've parameterized those engagements into their most meaningful elements, then I can start to do a bunch of excursion analysis to say, Okay, when I if I go left at this velocity, then I'm I'm gonna have a chance versus if I go right. So there, there's all sorts of sort of complexity and research that has to be done there. The reason the way that we stay ahead of it and and place those lessons learned into really great training curriculum is one, we're very thorough about our analysis of the space. We do a number of excursions, big we do a, a lot of work with big data. We do hundreds of millions of modeling and simulation runs. And and we are training adversary agents. So this is the deployment of artificial intelligence to to eventually outpace the human's ability to react. Right. So if we've done our if our work right, we're we're going to train adversary agents that are really good sparring partners for blue operators. And then we're going to take those agents right after we've trained them to beat every operator you can possibly imagine. We're going to put that into our system so that they can beat any human operator. So it's it's this dance, this iterative dance between uh, operators and and artificial intelligence that we're, that we're trying to uh, achieve here. Evan, thank you so much for your time. You're so welcome. And thank you very much, Laura. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening.